Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics of the late 90s, but mostly, actually, early 2000s this season. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Today, we're going to flex that early 2000s portion of our bio and talk a little bit about the garage rock or New York rock or whatever you want to call it, the rock scene that was in New York in the early 2000s. New York was not a place for rock and roll in the 90s and most of the 80s. Um, I just recently watched a documentary I was texting you about on this record store called Other Music, which is named after that aforementioned record store. And they talked a lot about this specifically, like there's great dance music, hip hop, techno, and there's like all sorts of great pop that's coming out of the city during those decades. But really all alternative and rock was coming out of Midwest college towns and like Seattle, Chicago, LA. It really wasn't a New York thing. Kind of unlike the 70s and 80s where like you had CBGBs and the Mud Club and the grittiness itself in New York kind of just went dead. And and then as it was going towards 2000, I mean, it was Giuliani's New York. I was about to say, thanks a lot, Rudy Giuliani. God damn it. <laughs> um, Rudy can't fail. But no, that's not true. He did fail. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't oh, believe God. you I'll did s- that, especially since on your Spotify for the last two days, it said that that was the last song you listened to. Oh, really? I, yeah. I think I listened to it in honor of that Borat. <laughs> movie oh I'm, i've been saving the ball rap movie for tonight because i'm like i need a laugh <laughs> i really want to <laughs> laugh and if you can believe it sean's never seen the first ball rat so i don't really you know, know i haven't I know. seen it in its entirety ever what like it's happening i know i just it was so there are a lot of movies like that where like everybody saw them and i either saw them like three years later 
or have never seen them in their entirety. Like I saw, you know, part of it in a dorm room as I was drinking or something like that. That tracks. That tracks really hard. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, you've definitely heard of my wife or like a wah wah wee wah every now and again. You know where that's from. I had the distinct honor of seeing Borat not once but twice in theaters. And the second time was on Thanksgiving with my mom and my aunt and my cousin. And that was when the hotel lobby like naked wrestling scene happened. I mean, I've never gotten more questions in my life from my mom and my aunt at the same time. Like it was just, I just, I don't know. They're like, this is comedy. I was like, guys, I don't, I tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. And this was your idea of quote unquote family bonding. So you get what you get. You get what you get. (laughs) So in the early 2000s, despite Giuliani, something aligned in the stars. Maybe it was just an influx of art school kids at NYU, or maybe just like maybe any every other episode we've released this season, it was post 9-11 and people in the city needed some music that was fun and uplifting and didn't require you to like think too much. <laughs> the other day, Sean was like, you and Emily talk about 9-11 so much. You guys should rename your podcast to Loose Change. I was like, you're so <laughs> rude. Get out. <laughs> Can you believe that shit? How dare he? I know. I'm like, oh, it's called full circle. Look it up. I don't know what to tell you. Look, it just happened that season four was our slow burn of 9-11 pop culture style. He needs to leave it alone. And that's just it. That's just it. Like a dick slow burn. We got you beat this season. You want to talk about the KKK? Fuck you. We're talking about people's people's careers who were directly impacted by 9-11. You ain't got shit on us. I should, once again, like we've referenced many episodes where we talk about 9-11, we don't take 9-11 as a laughing matter. Of course not. We're not, I mean, I'm not a New Yorker, you're an East Coaster, but like we don't think it's, I mean, you know, we take it seriously or as seriously as you should, but it's just ironic, don't you think? Every (laughs) time we do research, this isn't our fault even, really. I mean, we, every time we do the research, it just shows up, shows up. I'm really hoping that we can kind of turn this boat around by the last episode of the season and maybe continue to row away from our rampant 9-11 talk. But, you know, it kind of makes sense in 2020 when things are just so awful that we point to a time where we thought that it couldn't get any worse. And then we look back and go, oh, yeah, it does. And it can. (laughs) Jesus, my God. So all of a sudden, though, there was a surge of bands coming out of New York and the rock alternative, indie rock, whatever you want to call it scene was fucking huge. So so much so that music journalist Lizzie Goodman released an oral history interview style book in 2017 called Meet Me in the Bathroom, which chronicled this scene and the, its incestuousness because like everybody was in each other's bands or managing each other's bands or oh, fucking, it's very, fucking like, each Vander- other's bands. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's, it's very Vanderpump rules where there's like a lot of crossover between people. So much. Everybody lived on each other's couches. Like it's, it's all that. The book specifically chronicles the years 2001 to 2011, which is what we will be mostly focusing on in this episode. We're going to specifically focus on four bands um, tonight, The Strokes, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, LCD Sound System, and Interpol. Margo, I know you're a big fan of The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, but were there any bands from this scene outside of kind of the four we're covering that you were a fan of? 
I actually was surprised that we didn't include TV on the radio. Yeah. Which I think that they fall possibly like slightly outside of this time period, even though they are lumped in with all of these bands as as changing part of the New York music landscape. But I'd say definitely TV on the radio, who I loved, and Vampire Weekend. I yes. wouldn't say that Vampire Weekend is necessarily, I mean, I guess you could say they're like a Massachusetts band or whatever, but they are, I mean, I think that they're like kind of like a quintessential like New York indie band. I mean, they got their start there. And honestly, um, when I saw that documentary, that was one of the first places where they sold their music. Like they're- Oh, that, really? That record store had its own online um, independent, like iTunes, if you will. Like they had their online music store as well. And that hmm. was the first place ever where you could buy Vampire Weekend's music online. I didn't know oh. that until this weekend. Yeah. Same. Yeah. That's really interesting. But I totally agree. As I was doing this research, I'm like, why the hell didn't we cover TV on the radio? They're fantastic. And I really do love them. And Vampire Weekend. It's almost like I would lump those two together more so than I would with this like earlier wave of the right because girl- I would yeah. I would associate TV on the radio and uh, Vampire Weekend with like college years and the bands yes. that we're about to talk about are more like middle school high school for sure for sure and so uh, maybe that's the the distinction and then I would also include the XX and yes. the, and the Kills in this group as well yeah are the Kills New York I don't know because. Allison Mosshart's like from Tennessee. So, and Jamie, what's his name, is from the UK. But I feel like they get kind of like lumped in there. But some people have argued that they got their start like in the Midwest. So I, I don't know. But I kind of like lump all of those four bands together on that side, like on the college year side of my life. For sure. I think someone else that came up for me um, a bit as I was doing this research, um, who's not a band, but I thought of Cat Power, who oh, was yeah. so big. Yeah. Um, during that time and uh, and sh- and just how much she's kind of touched a lot of these bands in the sense of like she's done collaborations and that kind of thing. And there's also like there is a little bit of a Canadian factor that's not quite New York, but adjacent to it all. Like like um, when I think Broken of Broken Social Social- Scene. Yes. Broken Social Scene and Feist, which like I think Who we talked about that podcast. too. Yeah. Shout out to my cousin <laughs> and her next door neighbor. <laughs> oh, and then I would also have to say – like Ratatat would be included too, yes, but again, like yes. on the other side. And there's a yep. fun, a friend of mine, she went to college in New York and she has a friend that lives there and she would sometimes stay in her apartment whenever she'd come back to visit. And she shares a wall with one of the guys from Ratatat. And she said that she stayed once while he was like recording and like at all fucking hours of the night, she'd hear like the same loop beat. She's like, it's kind of like cool at first. And then at a certain point I was like banging on the wall, like, I don't care that you have an album coming out. Like, please stop. Jesus. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, all right. So I think first and foremost, we'll go into the strokes here, which when I think about the early to mid 2000s, and I think about that quintessential New York rock band, the strokes is it for me. Hell, their big album, first album was titled Is This It? The band comprises of singer Julian Casablancas, guitarist Nick Valencia and Albert Hammond Jr., bassist Nikolai Frachur, and drummer Fabrizio Moretti. Oh man, this is a private school band, baby. And like, I can't judge because I went to private school, but all these band members met in boarding school or elite Manhattan prep schools. Julian Casablancas, Nick Valencia, and Fabrizio Moretti started playing together while attending the Dwight School in Manhattan. Casablancas met Nikolai Frachur when they were both attending the Lycée Francais in New York. That was a flex right there. (laughs) 
I know. I wasn't going to say anything, but um, <laughs> we get it. We We're get French. it. We're French. <laughs> um, when Casablancas met Albert Hammond Jr. while they attended boarding school in Switzerland around age 13. Hammond and Casablancas were later roommates in New York when Hammond moved there to attend Tish at NYU because, of course, the band basically created the New York band bingo card. They became a band in 1998, the two roommates, when they started playing together and they performed at a bunch of bars, lounges, venues, all that, most notably the Mercury Lounge. The booker at the lounge, Ryan Gentles, thought so highly of the group that he quit his day job to become their full-time manager. And what's kind of cool with the Strokes is that their first song set that they were really finessing, which was about 14 songs, is quite a bit of that original track listing of Is This It? Um, There are some variations on lyrics, song titles, a little bit of changes here and there, but it's fairly similar to what ended up being that final track list. They sent a demo to the newly reformed Rough Trade Records in the UK that had just had a resurgence after going bankrupt. And to this day, like Rough Trade's roster if you look at their artists it's like Anthony and the Johnsons, Alabama Shakes, Arcade Fire, Decemberist, Bell and Sebastian, Hold Steady, Libertines, Moldy Peaches. Like a lot of these, you know, kind of indie bands that have gone into Grammy success and whatnot. This would lead to the release of the Modern Age EP in 2001 which ended up being a big bidding war for them with major record labels. Um, And they ended up signing with RCA as their distributor. And that is actually a pattern with both The Strokes and my other band, LCD Sound System. They're both um, still tied to the independent labels that they worked with, but um, are then distributed by major labels. So that first album that I feel like everyone owned at one point or another is Is This It? The album produced was produced by Gordon Raphael, who would go on to produce their second album, Room on Fire. It was recorded at the Transpetarium and and NYC and recorded through live takes, which I think is very indicative of a lot of these New York bands who were kind of on this New York garage rock or neo garage spectrum. They were all trying to kind of recreate that live sound from the 70s and not recording, you know, separate parts, separate tracks. It's initially released in July 2001 on Rough Trade and RCA in the UK, and they were already pretty popular in the UK because of a free promotional single of Last Night. And the original album cover, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a black and white photo of a gloved hand on a woman's butt and she's naked. And it was actually the photographer's, um, the album photographer's then girlfriend. It was deemed too controversial for the North American release. So RCA decided to use a photo of the particle collisions in the big European bubble chamber, which is the cover we all know uh, for the U.S. release. The album was delayed until October of 2001, and this is important because it was a month after September 11th. (laughs) Like many of the subjects we talked about this season, changes had to be made after 9-11 because there was a track called New York City Cops, and RCA felt like the lyrics would be too controversial after 9-11, and the chorus's lyrics were, New York City Cops, they ain't too smart, so they replaced it with the track when it started. They released the album in October of 2001. Ended up selling 3.5 million copies, released three singles, uh, Hard to Explain, Last Night, and Someday. And the music videos that were accompanying these singles were all directed by Roman Coppola, brother of Sophia, son of Francis, creative partner of Wes Anderson, etc., etc. Is This It received critical acclaim. Um, and in all of my albums that I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to give you the Pitchfork Media rating because that's important. Um, It got a 9.1 out of 10 from Pitchfork, 
Over time, the album has topped the list of many best of the 2000s album lists. In 2009, NME would name it, Is This It, as the greatest album of the decade of the 2000s. It was number two on a similar list that Rolling Stone put together. And it peaked at number 33 at the US Billboard 200 and number two on the UK albums chart. And after the album's release, the band toured all over the world and even opened for the Rolling Stones during some of their North American dates. So after Is This It, they followed up with Room on Fire, which is Room on Fire is still a fantastic album, but it was very hard to follow up Is This It, especially an album like that that was kind of indie-ish, if you will, that went on to sell 3.5 million copies. They released Room on Fire in October of 2003. They had actually begun recording the follow-up in 2002 after releasing it into their first album in 2001, which sounds like something out of our boy bands episode. Like that kind of uh, timeline for a band like that just seems very rare to me. They first started working with Nigel Godrick, who was the producer behind Radiohead, but they would go on to fire him because it felt like it wasn't working out. Um, the Strokes then rehired Gordon Raphael from their first album to produce this album, and they only had three months of studio time to record this album. It would spawn three singles, 12 minutes and 51 seconds, Reptilia, and The End Has No End. Lauded and Celebrated is a really important album. Pitchfork gave it an 8.0. So it did fairly well. And honestly, I really enjoy this album still. I think what was the most fun thing for me as I was putting together my notes was just re-listening to all these albums and, and remembering these songs. They would follow it up with First Impressions of Earth, which was released in January of 2006, um, they'd gone on to initially record it with Gordon Raphael, but uh, they ended up deciding to go with David Kahn, who had produced Paul McCartney, Tony Bennett, and Sublime, and because the collaboration with Raphael was not working out, and so most of the album was produced by him. There were a few singles on this one, Juicebox, Heart in a Cage, and You Only Live Once. It got uh, pretty good reviews, but Pitchfork was not kind to it. It got a 59 but ultimately, I just love that you're using Pitchfork as like this barometer right now. I feel like I for this episode, it's perfect. <laughs> I guess in a way, because they really were the arbiters of whatever was ha- I, like between them and NME. They were both kind of the place that yeah. you would go to see like what these albums are doing, or what they sound like or whatever. But I I purposely left off all the Pitchfork chicks. I was like, oh, this is like so confusing and. And this doesn't mean anything. So I used billboard charts, but I I did see I was tempted to use because it comes with that and like the Metacritic when you're like looking stuff up for each of these albums. And I'm like, well, Metacritic isn't like fully accurate. It's like not as, you know, precise as like a Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. But I just find it to be I'm laughing inside every time you're like the pitchfork rating is... I just like I figured in this case I would never do this on any other episode, but like for this one, it just felt right. <laughs> well, we couldn't do this for like one hit wonders. It wasn't like they were getting rated by Pitchfork. You mentioned Lou Bega. <laughs> I was thinking I want to be bad. Like, what is I want to be bad's Pitchfork rating? <laughs> I feel like there's a there's a job there for that though. You know, if I were editor at Pitchfork, I would hire someone specifically to do that. Rate <laughs> rate these kinds of songs on a Pitchfork scale. <laughs> Anyway, First Impressions of Earth did fairly well, but it was actually, uh, it only sold a little under 300,000 units in the US. And uh, the band would go on a hiatus in 2007 and release a few more albums in the last decade. So Angles in 2011, Come Down Machine in 2013, and most recently, which is a fucking great album. I really like the new strokes. Oh my God, it's so good. I have to say, 
Did you oh, watch them on SNL this weekend? I didn't, you know, and I actually need to watch the Mulaney Strokes episode. I still haven't. I mean, you know, I think I'm going to leave it to tomorrow because I'll, I'll be really frazzled tomorrow after everything, regardless of the results. So, well, I would <laughs> I would encourage you just to watch the Strokes performance and perhaps put off the Mulaney aspect for a little while. I would say even past tomorrow, just because, you know, hot takes. Hot but, takes. Uh, the Strokes look good, sound great. It was so refreshing to see them perform. I really hope we need a cure because I really want to see the Strokes live next Me summer. Me too. I, Let's like, get a cure going, you guys. Come on, wear your masks. Let's do this. Literally. I want to see. I mean, if anything, this this episode doing research just really made me miss live music because I've oh seen my God. all the bands that we've talked about multiple times over the course Ugh. of my life. And I want to see them again. And I didn't realize how much I had missed live music until we started doing this episode. I'm like, <laughs> me too. I just, I've never seen the strokes. And I was after this, I was like, why the fuck haven't I seen the strokes in concert? Good God. Next year. Well, because they took to- that, I honestly that blame history. that. They keep taking yeah. hiatuses and then their tours aren't really even that big. I saw them truly by, I mean, it was like calculated happenstance, but they were played like a festival that I went to. And that's the only reason why I saw them because every arena tour was, I just always missed them. So yeah, fingers crossed we get that cure so we can go to Outside Lands next year. I, yeah, same. I cannot wait to see them one day live in concert. Really, that's all I have for the Strokes other than this is one of the bands that really, for me, sparked my interest in 60s and 70s garage rock. And for almost a decade, I spent a lot of time and money collecting regional 60s garage rock compilation albums because of bands like the Strokes. So thank you, Strokes. Um, Yeah, it was nice to revisit. And uh, yeah, I really want to see them live in concert. So that's the Strokes. Well, then I am going to start with the yeah, yeah, yeahs, I think, even though I kind of hold at least, I mean, from a personal vantage point, I hold Interpol and the Strokes sort of in the same realm, probably because I was either introduced to or bought their albums around the same time. But I'm going to start with the yeah, yeah, yeahs. It is not hyperbole for me to say that the yeah, yeah, yeahs got me through high school. I didn't know it at the time, but screaming art star in my room with Karen O was therapy, as a matter of fact. Revisiting their albums has brought back so many awkward memories, like crying to maps like a fucking loser after I got dumped. Oh, my God. Blasting date with the night after a football game. Playing bang while smoking weed at a friend's house because we thought we were subversive. It was already bad enough that I started listening to Sum 41 before noon a couple of weeks ago in my musical regression phase of quarantine. But I promise I'm a totally fine, completely emotionally stable woman revisiting a band from her youth. Speaking of Sum 41, can I tell a quick 30-second story? Oh, yeah, please. Very Canadian story here. I was visiting one of my aunts who lives in Montreal, and she – one time we were having dinner with her, uh, at her house, and one of the teachers who works at her preschool was there with the girl she nannied. The girl she nannied's dad was a famous Canadian record producer who produced Sum 41's first album. So Whoa. she showed up. We had never met this girl, but she showed up with like five new albums for each – my sister and me. So we each got the Sum oh 41 God. CD. It was fucking awesome. So I don't know where this girl is to this day, but thank you. That was really great. So I got this Tom 41 CD for free. That reminds me of the time that a friend of ours in middle school surprised us with a new Green Day album. And that's how we found out his mom worked for Warner Brothers Music. We're like, wait, what? You like brought the six of us like a bunch of free CDs for the for Green Day? And your mom is also like a music person? Great. Thank you. A, a double. What a weird day, but I'll take it. <laughs> so to get back to the yeah, yeah, yeahs. So Yaya Yaws were formed in New York in 2000 by Karen O'Neill, Karen Lee, or Zolek. 
along with guitarist slash keyboardist Nick Zinner and drummer Brian Chase. Their name is taken from the New York vernacular of just saying like, yeah, 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 which like I totally love. The AAS have been described as art rock with a post-punk edge. They also have a lot of very danceable songs, too. But there's something about the New York indie music around this time that's very dancey. There used to be a club I went to, like an 18 and over club I used to go to that was all about playing only indie New York dance music. So I heard a lot of yeah, yeah, yeahs, LCD Sound System, The Rapture, etc., Karen's voice most often gets compared to Susie of Susie and the Banshees, which, you know, there's some similarities there, but it comes up kind of a lot. Yeah, it comes up a lot. It comes up in almost every positive critical review of which they have many. And now a quick word on Luna Lounge, where all of the cool stuff happened while we were too busy being two unfortunate dinguses in middle school slash high school. Because this venue is bound to come up one way or another between the four bands that we're talking about, I thought I'd sneak in a quick note about Luna Lounge. It was a bar slash music venue in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and it opened in 1995 by Diana Galliano and Robert Scheer. It was popular among bands and stand-up comics, and it's most notable for being the place that Elliot Smith wrote all of his songs for XO. All of this is to say is that the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, The Strokes, Interpol, LCD Sound System, and a few other bands that I am forgetting have all played here, and some of their, oh, The White Stripes, even though they're not like a New York band, but they are you know, in the, you know, notable acts section, if you will, have all played Luna Lounge, like a rite of passage. So for the group formation, Karen O and future drummer Brian Chase met at Oberlin, of course, in the late 90s. Karen then transferred to NYU where she met Nick Zinner at a local bar and they became immediate friends. Concurrently happening, Karen O was living in a loft with band members from the band Metric. Quick aside, Joel Scott Key, who is in metric, lives in Oakland now, and I couldn't even tell you, like, eight years ago or maybe more, ten, a friend of mine and I got drunk at a bar in Oakland with him at The Graduate. He was a super nice dude, and he had a bunch of fun tour stories to tell us, and he also, like, talked shit about a bunch of other bands and gave us a lot of, like, insidey scoop. It was a great night, and he paid for all of our drinks. Not like The Graduate drinks are very expensive, but it was fun. The Graduate's a dive. Highly recommend. Anyway, at first, Karen O and Nick Zinner formed an acoustic duo called Unitard, but being a bit more on the like avant-garde artist side Karen O was, hence the Oberlin of everything, she wanted to mix it up. So they recruited a drummer, but it didn't work out, and it just so happened that Brian Chase was living in New York at the time, and so they joined up, and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs was born. And their first ever gig was opening for the White Stripes, which I love all of this crossover. So their self-titled debut EP, sometimes incorrectly called Master because Karen O is wearing a giant nameplate necklace that says Master on the cover, was released July 9th, 2001 on their own label called Shifty. It hit number one on the UK indie charts and NME named it, see, here we go, I'll, I'll use NME randomly throughout as like a marker of success. They named it the second best EP of 2002. Most of all, it launched their careers. In addition to opening for the White Stripes, they also supported the Strokes on some of the tour dates. And the following year, they played South by Southwest, toured with Girls Against Boys, and in Europe, they opened for the John Spencer Blues Explosion. Even though they built a very respected reputation through their AP and nonstop touring, they turned down several major labels so that they could produce their own debut album themselves. As Karen O told Spin, we were all living together and all the money we used to fund it came out of our pockets. So we now have Fever to Tell, which was produced by the Yeah, yeah, yeah and David Seek. Sit, 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 ac- mm. well, anyway, he's a TV on the radio producer, and he also was their tour manager up until this time. In an interview with Lizzie Goodman for Meet Me in the Bathroom, Karen O describes their encounters as 
I remember him giving me a few burn CDs of stuff stuff he had worked on, said Karen O. I guess he was just a buddy and we felt immediately like family with him and we didn't really know anyone else. And it was probably one of the biggest reasons we wanted to work with him because we didn't know anyone else. Then, of course, he ended up being really fucking masterful. Once the recording was finished, the album was mixed in London by Nick Zinner and sound engineer Alan Mulder of Nine Inch Nails and My Bloody Valentine. And they'll go on to work with him, I think, for almost every single album after this. And it would. And then we have Fever to Tell was released May 3rd, 2003 by Interscope. And it was critically and commercially a success. It debuted at number 67 on the Billboard 200. And their third single, Maps, was all over mainstream radio and made several greatest songs of all time lists. It also charted on the Billboard rock charts at number nine. Karen's boyfriend at the time, Spike Jones, directed a music video for Wide Control. And this album was nominated for Best Alternative Album Grammy. And it went gold in the U.S. and U.K. Fancier writers would tell you that Fever to Tell is representative of the early 2000s garage rock revival, but I'll just tell you that it's a fucking great album that has stood the test of time. They are the classic rock, and I'm defining rock here as people in a band who play traditional rock instruments like drums and keyboard, but anyway, they are a classic rock band in the same sense that Led Zeppelin is. So their second album, Show Your Bones, is their follow-up. And it was released March 28, 2006. In early 2005, the band decided to scrap all the songs that they had already written so far and reinvent all of their style. Karen O said, we weren't interested in making Fever to Tell Part 2. The pressure is to reinvent ourselves. We don't know how we're going to do it yet, but I think that it's in our best interest to try and explore other directions. Nick Zinner also added, it seemed like a necessary step and the obvious thing to do is to not repeat what you've played. I was disappointed by a lot of bands' second records recently over the past year or two because it just sounds like B-sides from their first record. The band said during the writing and recording process, they had almost broken up, calling it their, quote, darkest moments. But Show Your Bones debuted at number 11 on the Billboard 200 with 56,000 copies sold in its first week. Singles off Show Your Bones notably are Gold Lion and Cheated Hearts, and they were again nominated for a Best Alternative Album Grammy in 2007. It's Blitz was released ahead of schedule because the album leaked early. So instead of coming out in April, it came out in March of 2009. And three singles followed, Zero, Heads Will Roll, and Skeletons. It's Blitz, exclamation point, debuted at number 32 on the Billboard 200 and sold 13,000 digital copies in its first week. Following its physical release, the album actually climbed to a new position as number 22 in its fourth week on the chart, selling 22,000 copies, which is quite notable because I feel like Nowadays, it'd be like the opposite. If you had like a physical release, you'd have like shit sales. Yes. And then with streaming, it'd be like the reverse. So yeah. I just found it interesting that in 2000, even in 2009, when I think that like CDs and physical releases were starting to make their way out, that it actually climbed up once they did release the CD. I thought that was interesting. It is interesting. Huh. Like, I, yeah, I guess, yeah, that wouldn't happen now. I feel like the only instance right? where that maybe happens like Taylor Swift or Adele, because they like, I feel like both of them do big things with physical copies of albums, but that's, those are really the exceptions. Yeah, there are only like a handful of artists that can release a physical album and have it do better or just as well as their streaming numbers. But especially now with streaming being so prevalent, I don't even know if it could even kind of come to like a close equivalent. Yeah. So they followed up, it's Blitz, exclamation point, with Mosquito. It was released April 12, 2013, and entered the Billboard 200 number five and sold 38,000 copies its first week. It's also their third consecutive top 10 album in the UK. They got the gang back together to produce this along with LCD Sound Systems' James Murphy, 
Their first single, Sacrilege, was released ahead of the album's debut, but by December 2014, the Yaya Yaz announced their hiatus. So what they've been up to sort of in the interim. In 2016, they got a writing credit on Beyonce's Hold Up. In 2017, they remastered Fever to Tell with a bunch of demos and B-sides that were unreleased. And in a press release, the band said, quote, a friend of a friend kept asking if we were ever going to put Fever to Tell out on vinyl as it happened. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hasn't been on vinyl in 10 years. That's not right. So here it is on vinyl for the first time in 10 years, plus a time capsule of photos, demos first ever recorded, a mini film documenting our near downfall, and other fun memorabilia from the turn of the century in New York City. Made with love and the usual blood, sweat, and tears of the Yaz. To celebrate the reissue, a small series of shows were performed at the Fonda, the Fox Theater up here, and Brooklyn's King's Theater. On a personal note, I've seen the Yaz somewhere around eight to ten times. It's like them and Spoon are like the bands I've seen the most my whole life. And I actually got to meet them at 16 at the Fonda, and they were fucking rad. Brian, their drummer, talked to me about his jazz technique of drumming for a long time. And he introduced us to Gwen Stefani and Tony Canal, who were backstage. And Tony Canal. What? Yes. And Tony Canal took that photo of me, Val, and Marianne with Karen O. Oh, That's my God. Why I look so awkward in it because I couldn't believe that Tony Canal offered to take my photo. And then I started to explain how a digital camera works to him. And I was like, you know what you're doing. And then ran into the picture and looked so awkward and uncomfortable. But everybody was so, so nice. It was a positive experience. Karen O is the fucking coolest person on earth. Their drummer is... Brian Chase is like a very well-regarded drummer. Like he drums in the style of a jazz drummer. He went to Oberlin to study jazz technique. And he is like ranked in like the top 50 best drummers of all time kind of thing. This is a common pattern though with a lot of these bands. Like I will say the difference between that like 70s, 80s rock scene versus the one of the 2000s, the 70s, 80s, you have a lot of people who just kind of self-taught. Here you'll have some of those, but there's a lot of people who do have that jazz musician background or like studied it at one point or another. Yeah, I thought that was very fascinating. Karen O has gone on to do some independent stuff, some solo stuff, and she is very like artsy. And so she's done some like art installations. But I will say all three of them are very they have like an art, a more artistic side. And Nick Zinner has a background in photography. And I went to go see one of his photo installations at. Um, oh, my God. It used to be called like Public Works. I think it might be called something different now in the city. But oh, it's he did Public like, Works. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I've been so there. So he 
had an art installation, I think in 2010, because I went to go cover it for Bold Italic or somebody. And so it was just a bunch of his photos that he had taken. Some of them were like tour photos. Some of them were like modeling photos because he had done a campaign for Lee Jeans, which is like super random. And he was there. And I was under the impression from the press release that he was going to like say something or like, I don't, I don't know. I thought there's gonna be more interaction, but he got on stage and he was like, Hey, thanks for coming. And then he just like shredded on the guitar for 20 minutes. And he was like, okay guys, enjoy the installation. Like left. I was like, (laughs) 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 I wasn't mad at it. Like I love truly weird shit, but it was just like, okay. And I mean, I went alone. So I was like, I didn't have anybody to look at and be like, are you, is this okay? This is happening. All right, cool, cool. This is but happening. <laughs> I I highly recommend if you have not listened to the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs in a long time or ever, if you're a younger person, could not recommend listening to the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs enough. It all, it all holds up. It's a, gr- a fever to tell, especially is a, a great album from start to finish. No I, skips. Uh, no no skips. skips. All bops. I'm quite a fan of Fever to Tell. I also love It's Blitz, though. I really, really, really love that album. Um, yeah, I got to re-listen to the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. I, I listen to them. I feel like every couple of years I, I pick them up again, and I it's been a while. So after this, I think I'll be listening to them. So my next band, or I guess final band, because we each got two, I will start that from the beginning. I mean, in the interest of not having an emo band episode part two, unless you guys really love listening to us speak for two hours, which I don't even know if Emily and I enjoy hearing ourselves speak for two hours. uh, We decided to keep it, you know, kind of on the lighter side. You know, we're trying to keep these like around an hour-ish or whatever. We do our best. You know, We we do our best. We talk a lot. I think it's for your benefit that we just keep it to four bands and we can always do a mini or a follow up or whatever. So don't worry. We'll get to other bands that you think we're missing at some point. Yeah, totally agree. So I'm going to talk about LCD Sound System, which is one of my all time favorite bands. Um, They were founded in 2002 by James Murphy and LCD Sound System. While they have band members, it really is mostly James Murphy's project. It's kind of like I don't want to compare it to Steely Dan, but it's a little like that where there are, you know, band members per se, but really it's just one person where like Steely Dan was two people. Um, The band's members are obviously James Murphy, who's the main vocalist, does various things. Um, But other members have included Nancy Wang, who's synthesizer and keyboards and vocals, Pat Mahoney, Raina Russum, Tyler Pope, Al Doyle, Matt Thornley, and Corey Ritchie. So James Murphy started the band in Brooklyn, of course. Uh, Prior to LCD Sound System, he was a DJ and he used the name Death From Above when DJing, which was a nickname that he was that was given to his signature PA setup when he was uh, setting up sound for Six Finger Satellite. And fun fact, he as a younger man uh, famously turned down a job writing for Seinfeld, which I didn't know. Hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> LCD Sound System would go on to release their singles through DFA Records, which James Murphy had st- co-started. They first became well-known with their single Losing My Edge, which would go on to number 115 on the UK charts. It's a song that's over eight minutes, and it's just this dance track that's like an eight-minute manifesto that kind of says, you know, I was here before you, man, in some ways. But it it start it basically states that Murphy did all this cool stuff before younger people were doing it, and then it's kind of his internal like 
getting embarrassed about thinking about it that way. So he even said in an interview that it kind of came from a time where he'd been the go-to DJ and was known by many people for his like great sets in Brooklyn. And one night he was at a party and he heard someone else playing the same records he'd been playing in his sets. He started getting really mad about it and was like, who the hell is this person doing what I do? And then he realized like he was overcome by embarrassment because he realized like he'd never performed any of those songs originally Anybody can play these records. And that's where Losing My Edge came from, which is just like this eight minute talk track. It's a it's a great track, though. I still enjoy it. And uh, that song would end up on their self-titled debut album, which was released in January of 2005. And it's at this point that they also signed with Capitol Records, again, kind of like the Strokes. They stayed with their independent label, but also had a distributor. So the album was released by both DFA and Capitol. And the singles from that album include Movement, Daft Punk is playing at my house, which went on to hit number one on the UK dance dance charts and was my personal introduction to LCD sound system because the song was featured on one of the OC soundtracks, which is a nice yep. tie in, which is a nice tie in here. I feel like um, not all the New York bands, but quite a few of them made appearances on those OC soundtracks because I think in total there were about four or five and maybe even also the the Garden State soundtrack was a little bit part of that as well. But yeah, I feel like there were just such a big influx of indie-ish um, soundtracks that came out from TV shows and movies in that like five-year period between 2002 to like 2007, where a lot of these artists kind of got their first shot at like mainstream people hearing about them outside of like people who knew, you know, Pitchfork and other music blogs. Disco Infiltrator and Tribulations were the other two singles from that album. And it ended up being nominated for the 2006 Grammy Award for Best Electronic Slash Dance Album. And Pitchfork (laughs) gave it an (laughs) 8.2. The next album that they would release was more of a concept. And it's actually not even considered one of their albums. It's a commissioned piece by Nike. This is where New York indie rock goes corporate. Uh, To be fair, though, there's a good segue here because I think a lot of these bands, while maintaining their integrity as artists, realize that you need to make money and authorize the use of their music in commercials a lot more than I think their predecessors. So I think a lot of people heard Jet for the first time because of that, you know, Apple, that iPod commercial, right? With like the pink background and the black silhouettes dancing. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of that that happens where these bands who wouldn't have normally gotten this kind of coverage all of a sudden are, you know, everybody knows this song because they decided to let whoever use their song in a commercial. But this Nike commission was kind of cool because it was meant to be like music, like a playlist that you would run to, but it's just an ongoing set of music that lasts in fact 45 minutes and 33 seconds. It was originally only exclusive to the Nike music store on iTunes, which is the most like 2006 thing I've ever read out loud. And it was released strictly digitally um, at first. And then later there was a physical copy released about a year later. A lot of 45, 50, 33 was later used on the sound, the album Sound of Silver, in particular, the track Someone Great, the instrumental, you can hear it as part of 45, 33. And later releases, you'll see the track list kind of mostly appears as like 4533 part one, 4533 part two. So it's it's just kind of cut up. Um, but it would reach number seven on the U.S. top dance and electronic albums. Um, at the time, Nike had suggested the album was had been tweaked for runners following James Murphy's own treadmill tests, um, which apparently James Murphy <laughs> later claimed real, or admitted that he had lied um, about 
like syncing it with his treadmill tests. He is actually someone who does jujitsu. Um, and he said, quote, I'm not built to run. I'm built for fighting, not running away. <laughs> okay. Um, so <laughs> this is followed by Sound of Silver, which I think is my favorite LCD sound system album. It is released in March of 2007, received a 9.2 on Pitchfork, <laughs> and was later nominated for the Grammy Award for Best Electronic Dance Album. Murphy recorded Sound of Silver in Long at the Longview Farm in Massachusetts, um, and once it was at one point a dairy estate, and it was later converted into studios in the 1970s, and people who have recorded there included Stevie Wonder, Bad Brains, and John Belushi, Bad brains. Love them. Shout out DC Music. Um, it was here also where Keith Richards recorded um, some of his sessions in 1981 that were just like very boozy and drug fueled. The album is dedicated to Dr. George Kamen um, and even has a dedication in the inner sleeve. Kamen apparently was a big pioneer of group therapy in New York, and he is reputed to have been James Murphy's longtime therapist. That is what I have for Sound of Silver, but I should note that the entire recording studio was covered in silver fabric by James Murphy to get a vibe going for the recording sessions, which was pretty wild. That sounded like something Brian Wilson would have done in the Beach Boys, but I enjoyed reading that tidbit. It's in a fact, bit of like insufferable behavior, but it that's is a fine. little insufferable, but we'll 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 allow it. Um, he in fact took a piece of that fabric um, when he was recording the follow up album. This is happening, and and put it up on the wall at the mansion where uh, Rick Rubin was the producer on that album. So when he go went to record at the mansion, he had put up some of that silver fabric up there. And this is around the time that LCD Sound System will announce that they are in fact going to break up. So they released This Is Happening in May of 2010. It spawned four singles, Pow Pow, Drunk Girls, I Can Change, and Throw. The band would tour for the album in 2010, which is the first time I saw them, and would end their run together with one final concert at Madison Square Garden on April 2nd. Following the immediate sale of those tickets, LCD Sound System also announced that they would play four warm-up shows at New York's Terminal 5, and the set list from those shows actually pretty much mirrored what ended up being the four-hour show at Madison Square Garden. And people who appeared in that Madison Square Garden show included Arcade Fire, Reggie Watts, and many other bands. The show ended very famously with the song, New York, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down, and would later be chronicled in the documentary, Shut Up and Play the Hits. But at that point, LCD Sound System would go on a hiatus for most of the 2010s, or for at least the first half, but they would go on to release a Christmas single in 2015 and later reunite in 2016 when they headlined Coachella after having denied a reunion uh, the year before. James Murphy claims that David Bowie was one of the, re the reasons he brought the group back together because he actually worked on Bowie's final album, Black Star. LCD Sound System would later sign with Columbia Records, release their first album in seven years when they released American Dream in September of 2017. Pitchfork gave it an 8.5. <laughs> oh, my God. My personal anecdote with LCD Sound System, as I said earlier, I really love them. They are to this day one of my all-time favorite bands. Um, I've seen them twice in concert. The album This Is Happening was a soundtrack to my college graduation and that subsequent summer. I saw them at the Virgin Mobile Free Fest at Meriwether Post Pavilion later that year, where I then ran into the cool parents of some kids I babysat. I ended up drinking with them a lot that night, and uh, we got to like hang out during that set. So that was really cool. Um, the band would end up taking their hiatus the following year, 
And then I saw them six years later at Bill Graham when they did their first, first tour after reuniting. And that is what I have for LCD Sound System. I got to see LCD Sound System basically open for Jay-Z at Coachella. And then they came out and played the New York song at the end of the night. And it was definitely like the best show I've ever like. I mean, that Coachella, that Friday Coachella where it was like them crooked vultures LCD Sound System and Jay-Z is probably oh, one of the wow. best shows I've ever seen in my whole what life. What is that? I mean, so what a headlining. Like, mm. When LCD Sound System came back, I was like, I don't want to ruin this memory, so I'm just going to not see you guys again. But they, yeah, they were amazing. That was one of the best shows I've ever seen. They were incredible. Ugh, amazing. And, all, and that documentary is also fantastic. I knew I was going to cry and then I definitely cried. And it was yeah. just, but it was, it's such a good music documentary too. And it, it's not it, just concert shit. I mean, it is concert no, stuff, but, but it's, it's a not fantastic. Just that. You're yeah. absolutely right. I feel like when I think of really good music documentaries, that one's up there for me along with like The Last Waltz, Stop Making Sense. I was about um, to say, it almost seems like it's, it's the Stop Making Sense for them. That's how. Right it felt like from that's what it read like for me you know and I, it's actually a great point because i think like stop making sense might be like gen x's docu rock doc and i feel like this might be gen y's rock doc if that makes any sense and i hate to do that but i i, I that's that's how i'd like to think of it in some ways i think that that tracks for me we're gonna go ahead and work with that operating theory and then we're just gonna skate on into some interpol here Wow, this is another band I used to lay in the dark and cry to from roughly the ages of 15 to 22. I've also done a lot of drugs to, the, to this band, so plus one for the indie rock scene in the early 2000s for being officially the soundtrack of my life. <laughs> in a quick overview, Interpol formed in New York in 1997 with Paul Banks, the lead singer-guitarist, Daniel Kessler, guitar, Carlos Dengler, bass and keyboard, and Greg Dury drums. But by 2000, Dury had left the band and was replaced with the drummer that we, me, now know, Sam Forgano. So the band formed when Banks and Daniel Kessler had met the year prior when they were both studying abroad in Paris, but then had reconnected the summer of 97. Kessler had started a band with the future former drummer Greg and Carlos Degner, but Banks was initially not very interested in joining a band. But he eventually joined after hearing the sound direction that they were going in, and they named themselves Interpol. If Interpol has a signature something, it would be Paul Banks's voice because he sounds very close to Ian Curtis of Joy Division. And again, yeah. just like Karen O, yeah. compared to Susie a bunch, he, I, there's there are so many reviews where they they sound like Joy Division. They sound like Echo and the Bunnymen, and we talk about that. But most notably, his voice does sound very similar to Ian Cur- Curtis's voice. Like the Yeah Interpol got their start at the Luna Lounge, sharing the stage with the Strokes and the National. After self-releasing several EPs between 1998 and 2001, they signed with Matador Records in 2002. Their first release on the label came out in June of 2002, and it was a self-titled EP with singles that would later go on to be on their full-length debut album. And it was PDA and NYC. Turn on the Bright Lights came on later in the summer in August, and it was critically acclaimed for being very Echo and the Bunnymen, the Smiths of 2002. And the album's success was kind of more of a slow build, though. But by 2004, it had sold 300,000 copies, so that's not nothing. Turn on the Bright Lights was recorded in Connecticut in November 2001, if you were wondering why it was so sad, and released August 20th of 2002 and entered the Billboard 200 at 
158, but it hit number five on the indie charts. The singles off of this album would be PDA, Obstacle One, and Say Hello to the Angels. Personally, I love to lay in the dark to Obstacle One, but you know everybody mm. has their one that they like to listen to. Banks described the process for this album as smooth since they had already been writing, recording, and playing live together as a band for five years prior to being signed. They since remastered and reissued the seminal album some New Yorkers associate with post-9-11 New York, which, you know, had to slip in a little 9-11 reference here. Their follow-up album, Antics, was released September 27, 2004, and was again critically a success, but finally a commercial hit. And all three singles charted, Slow Hands, Evil, and Come Here. It peaked at number 15 on the Billboard 200 and sold 488,000 copies and was certified gold in the U.S. They had whatever the opposite of a sophomore slump was with Antics. Notable about this physical album, they used Morris code on the track listing and throughout the booklet or the inlet or whatever that thing inside the album is. And capitalizing on the success of Antics, they embarked on their longest, biggest tour. On the road for 18 months, supporting bands like U2 and The Cure. Exhausted by tour, they took three months off after that. But by March 2006, they confirmed they were back in the studio and were leaving Matador. Their contract was up. They eventually signed to Capitol in August of that year and released Our Love to Admire the following year. Released July 10th, 2007, Our Love to Admire is most known for its album cover art of two taxidermied animals going at it. But Our Love to Admire is Paul Banks's least favorite album of Interpol's. He had just gotten sober, and with the pressure of working with a major label, it ultimately resulted in a stressful, quote, and unpleasant, quote, experience that was also, quote, way too much work. This will be the only release on Capitol. They initially signed with them because they had worked with Radiohead and produced Kid A and Amnesia, and they had had a lot of great resources at their their disposal, and they felt very welcome to do whatever they wanted or keep doing what they were doing that was making them successful. But Capitol, somewhere along the line between signing and then recording, got sold. And in that process, it started to go downhill for Interpol. Like we've covered ad nauseum in previous music episodes. All it takes is one person who was rooting for you to leave, to totally tank your career wherever you presently are at. Mostly critically well-received, it performed well enough and debuted on the Billboard 200 at number four. Our Love to Admire was also partially leaked ahead of its release, but it didn't seem to cause too much damage, or at least not like the Yeah Yeah Yeah's album that was released prematurely and then pushed up the release date. Mostly because, according to sources, uh, it was shitty audio quality ripped from MySpace. So I just thought I'd throw in that very... 2000 and whatever sentence in there, 2007 sentence in there. (laughs) Their self-titled album came out in September of 2010. And by the time they had begun to record their fourth album, they had re-signed to Matador. This is going to be their last album with their current bassist, Carlos Dengler. They announced his departure from the group ahead of the album's release in May. Not as critically acclaimed as their prior efforts, according to Banks, the tension within the band at that time made it not a particularly easy album to make. But they toured with U2 nonetheless, but Bono hurt his back in the middle of it, so they rescheduled all of those dates. But then Interpol went on to just tour UK in in Ireland. Then they went back to the U2 tour the following summer. And by the time they got to the Reading and Leeds Fest in 2011, they announced that they were going to be going on hiatus post-tour. So more currently, a deluxe edition of Turn on the Bright Lights was released in December of 2012 to mark the album's 10-year anniversary, and it includes, like all good re-releases and remasters, hard-to-find tracks, demos, all that good shit. 
they got back together to record El Pintor, and they're still together now, you know, as much as you possibly can be a band. And one fun fact for the road, Paul Banks dated Helena Christensen for seven years after what? she dumped after she dumped Norman Reedus. Yes. And it was like a secret relationship. I I was scandalized. But I mean, wow. he is kind of hot and like I, she has a thing for dudes that look like that. So kind of it, it all it all attracted. She's I'm, I'm thinking of like Norman Reedus. Who else? She's dated quite a few people like. Um, oh, God, hmm. I can't remember because I also looked at it. It was like Norman Reedus. But even before that. Well, oh, I don't know. Did she sing- date it was Chris a lead sing- No, no, no. It's a lead singer from in- from in excess. That's who oh, she Michael was. Oh, Michael Hutchins. Thank you. Michael, yeah. Okay, so, so that, him, and before he died, yeah. So it was him. They lived together in Paris, and then it was him, and then it was Norman Reedus, and then they had a kid together, and then it was yeah. Paul Banks for seven fucking years, which I was like, what? I, I only, keep... Emily, they I, only broke up like two or three years ago. They broke up in like 2017 or something, not that long ago. I always think she also dated Chris Isaac because she's in the Wicked Game music video, but I don't think they ever dated. She's they just didn't. like... She's, she's just a love interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's a hot broad in it. Yeah. But they I mean they have undeniable chemistry. I don't yes. I mean, he's not yes. on the official paramours list that Wikipedia gives me. So that's all I can report back. But I saw Interpol open for the cure at some point. It, it had to have been at some point in high school because I was with my high school, my long-term high school boyfriend. And he was like, Oh, I don't really see what the big deal is. And I was like, Oh, you have no taste. And he doesn't have <laughs> any taste. So that's when I knew, and then I continued to date him because I had low self-esteem. So, and that's my relationship <laughs> with Interpol. <laughs> but I will, I will say, I even before, prior to this episode, the whole reason why I even wanted to do this episode was because I had revisited some Interpol records and was like, all of these are still really good. Turn on, turn on the bright lights, uh, antics, and even our love to admire. It might not have been their like best work or their easiest album is still really great. Like all of the singles still slap, but they still have like some good like bummer, lay in the dark, wonder what it all means music. And I don't know. I still appreciate it. it I don't know. I was listening to it today while writing up notes, and I I really liked everything that I listened to. I love Interpol. I don't know if they get enough love. Maybe they do, and I'm just not aware of it. I think one of the common factors with these bands. I don't know about you, but for me, at least, I I feel like, you know, we talk a lot about bands that we loved maybe at a certain point of our life, but mostly the bands we've talked about up until now have been ones we loved when we were like 10, 11, 12, 13, right? I feel like for both of us, these are bands that we loved into, you know, from our high school years all the way into our like college all the way into like now even that these are bands that these songs mean a lot to us and are it's like associated for me, especially like these are associated with certain memories that I have from my twenties, some good, some bad, but I feel like this, this particular episode really marks kind of a milestone in terms of bands we're covering that, that really I relate to from a, this was a big thing for me when I was a teenager and in my twenties. I would totally agree. I feel like more, like you said, more so than when we're talking about, you know, dream or bands that we loved when we were younger, this, this episode made me feel pretty old just because I guess like mentally you're like I'm still 24 like and I was like oh no this album is actually 15 years old and you are much older than you think you are so that kind of like sent me a little bit but like you said there are also so many memories like more recent memories that are associated with so many of these albums from like 
the Strokes LCD sound system, like you said, not um, Sound of Silver, but the other album. This is oh, it. this is happening. This is happening yeah. is very like reminds me of college. I can't even yep. tell you how many parties I went to where Daft Punk is playing at my house was just the only song that was on the playlist that night for some reason. Like very specific memories, like you said. I mean, this is again. I I really. I think I needed this episode in some ways with everything that's going on right now. Like this was just kind of a a nice hug and like a reminder of, oh, look at all this great music you haven't re- like visited in a while. Like I think I'll I listened to Is This It, I, you know, front to back a few times while I was putting together these notes. And because it's a quick listen, like these songs aren't longer than three minutes. Um, I know. Yeah. But it's oh, God. I mean, it just made me so happy. Like, it, it it reminded me of, like, some of the good parts of, like, being 18, right? <laughs> no, I cried to that Strokes album, too. Like, don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> but it does bring up some – I mean, and also so many of these albums – when I heard them initially in high school and like didn't have my own car or didn't drive or whatever, I was always like, I'm going to listen to these in my car at like full blast. And so a, a lot of these songs are also associated with like drive, well, being stuck in traffic, but all the windows down and just like blaring the strokes and just being mm. so obnoxious. Or like I said, listening to Date with the Night like in high school and being like, yeah, we, we just went to a football game and now we're going to Denny's. Like so exciting. But it it did feel like the hug that I needed. And it's the perfect distraction on the night that we record. Yes. As you can probably tell by now, we are recording on election night, which really uh, it's election week at this point. But enough of that. Um, this has been a nice visit. Um, and I'm sure for those of you who are listening, if you you know enjoyed this episode and you enjoyed this walk down memory lane of crying to CDs in your car, but also dancing, <laughs> dancing at, you know, 18 and under clubs and all oh, ages yeah. shows, all oh, ages shows, man. I've got a book like I'm looking at it right now. I have an all ages book that I will let you borrow at one point all about the history of those shows. If you like what you heard today, you can check us out on whatever you like to listen to podcast wise. We've we're on every single channel you can think of. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. One day we'll be on uh, Amazon and Audible when they launch their free podcast service. Uh, so check us out wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Additionally, if you also like reading uh, deep dives on things like the Baja Men, you should check out our Medium page. We're at, at Old Millennials Pod there. I just posted over the weekend a post all about the history of Who Let the Dogs Out. I spent four hours researching the song Who Let the Dogs Out, which no one should ever do. So please put me out of my misery. Make me feel like that research wasn't done in vain. Additionally, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. At the Old Millennials Pod, um, we love posting all sorts of fun Instagram things. Um, additionally, if you really love what you're hearing, please subscribe on whatever podcast medium you like to listen to. Rate us, like us, you know, tell us how we're doing. We love a five star review. We love a nice review. So please, please, please give us some love. <laughs> additionally, you can find us individually on Twitter. Emily, we're not that desperate. They can I leave know. a nice review if they want. But don't leave like mean reviews. And if you have, yeah, if you have feedback, just, you know, that's what DMs are for. Compliment sandwich. Just remember that. Lord. (laughs) Individually, you can find us on Twitter. I am at Emily A. Beijing. And I am at Margs, she wrote. And until next time, we say 
Bye. Goodbye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.